Welcome to Climate History, the podcast that explores what the past can tell us about the present and the future of climate change. I'm Emma Mosswild, PhD student in environmental history at Georgetown University. And I'm Dagmar de Groot, Associate Professor of Environmental History at Georgetown. This episode features a conversation with Debjani Bhattacharya, Associate Professor of History at Drexel University. Her research in environmental and legal histories is exemplified in her first book, Empire and Ecology in the Bengal Delta, The Making of Calcutta, which came out in 2018. Her current book project examines climate and weather knowledge and the marine insurance market, and her research and writing have also been published in journals such as Global Environment, History Compass, and Modern Asian Studies. Professor Bhattacharya, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me to this. So can you tell us a little bit about your academic background? Um, How did you become interested in urban history and climate history in India and across the Indian Ocean? Thank you so much, Emma, for that question. So uh, I had been all for a long time um, doing a lot of um, um, work with the city organizations when I lived in Calcutta. Uh, and I grew up in Calcutta in some ways. So uh, what was happening at that time was, uh, this was 2010 and the Supreme Court of India had passed a law and this was also very much a climate question. So India had a strong winter and a strong, really hot summer. And we saw a huge amount of homeless deaths. This is the point when Indian cities are beginning to talk about urban heat and and Delhi has shivering cold. And out of those massive numbers of deaths we were suddenly confronted with uh, of the uh, homeless uh, populations in the cities, which is, which is always, it's an extraordinarily high number in India, but it has never, people, were completely desensitized and used to having people squat all over the pedestrian ways. But the fact that just an extreme heat wave was killing them was something new that suddenly India was confronting. And this was a time of massive growth in inequality in India, massive expansion of, you know, uh, uh, real estate housing, massive expansion of gated living, a very new kind of living was being ushered in. You would see malls going up all around Indian cities. So it was at that time the Supreme Court passed a law that required every small, we call the cities divided into wards, every ward that has more than 1,000 homeless people had to build shelters. I went to a particular school that actually put um, um, uh, children of the homeless people and upper class kids in the same classroom. So I was very much involved with that, um, uh, with that work in the schools. I was tapped in to do the interviews for Calcutta. This was also the time I began doing my archival work, uh, was beginning to imagine my PhD project at that time. And so I really wanted to work. And this is the very interesting thing is the question is how I entered urban uh, environmental history, because I was really invested in writing a history of uh, homelessness in the city, like why and my major and history of property in the city. And my major question at the time was for South Asian historiography, Property is a very central defining question, and uh, and, uh, and but it, it is an agrarian question. 
And when it comes to housing rights and urban property, it is an anthropological question. It was like, what's this kind of disciplinary divide with the question of property that when, it, when historians think of property, they think of the agrarian landscape. When we think of urban property, it's only an anthropological and sociological question. So I went to the archive trying to look at uh, issues of homelessness, um, uh, like is that where were the migrant workers living in Calcutta when they were coming to Calcutta uh, from the late 18th century? Because Calcutta was completely built by migrant laborer. This it's not a new thing that migrant workers come to Indian cities to build, which often um, uh, anthropological literature talks about it. That it's a, it's something that we see from the 80s in a in a in a much more increasing way. When I went to the archive, most of the property dispute files that I found were often, uh, you have built a house on a drain, that is not a land, that is water. And of course, I kept putting it away because I really wanted the, uh, the story of, you know, property dispute between two people, squatters, squatter right move, movements, rights to the city. That was the rubric with which I was working. And I remember it was a monsoon day. And of course, there's a lot of history of Calcutta written as a history of marsh to metropolis and how British perseverance and colonial projects drained the city and beautified it. And I step out of the archive and I'm knee deep in water. And I'm like, wait a sec, didn't we uh, drain the city? Have I not been reading tons and tons of uh, secondary literature that's all about draining and disciplining the city? And then I went back to those files. And it is only then that I said, okay, there is another story of urban property that has to be written from the site of marshes, from alluvium, from water. So in a way, I re remember sitting down in 2010 uh, and really trying to understand. And the way then I went back, and I was also doing these interviews after the archive would shut down, I would actually go, I was working for uh, Jadavpur University's Women's Studies Department and, uh, uh, and, and, and uh, uh, like a resource center called Calcutta Samaritans. I was doing uh, the interviews for them and I would go and I realized so many of the homeless people actually live on reclaimed spaces. They live on what uh, Karen Coelho very interestingly says, the gradient where the upper class houses are on higher ground and it's on the gradient of these uh, marsh and swarm that the informality actually opens up. So this, so I was trying to really work through that. So that really made me realize, although at that time I didn't think of myself as an environmental historian or was not even trained as an environmental historian, I was like, these are questions you cannot unpack. The question of property, of informality, of housing is tied with climate condition, climatic conditions, tied with a long history of environmental arguments and logic about how we read and organize spaces. So that's how I ended up writing what I do. Yeah, I love that, that there's this immediacy of the physical environment that you really can't remove from your work. And so it has to it has to become part of the central question. And yeah, one of the most exciting things about your research to me is its consideration of watery and terrestrial environments. Um, and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what environmental historians maybe can learn when we extend our perspective beyond solid ground as you have? Yeah, no, that's, that's a very useful question. And that I think was a question in some ways I continue to grapple with, you know, what, is, what, what does it do when we turn to the amphibious? What does it do when we think in terms of the terra aqueous, not the solid? And you know, the historiography, if you look at it, it's very well developed. There is the landed history, like if we think, if one may say like histories of property, war, diplomatic history. And then there is the maritime history. It's extraordinarily rich field. 
And there's so much done. And of course, the rubric of maritime history is either piracy, is either legality, international law. It's now there's a lot of interesting work on coastal history. And I really think that's a new field and a new way of organizing uh, the literature, which I don't think like I had access to or I knew of 12 years ago, a decade ago when I was doing this work. Um, so there are a couple of things I will say about what the Terra Aquarius does. It uh, first defamiliarizes what we think we know as solid ground. It makes ask think. It made me think of any space I was looking at as not always there, but as a product of a certain visual literacy of how we see that space, a product of a certain legal literacy of how the space get categorized administratively and bureaucratically, and a technical literacy. And then what are the kind of projects we do upon that space? So when I teach my class, I often show my students a picture. And to, if I describe the picture, it's basically a sheet of water and a lamp post, electric post. And I, I said, what do you guys see? Everybody sees a road. No one sees water. And I tell them then, let's unpack what we saw right now. Why is it that the water is invisible, but the infrastructure is visible? And that's a very interesting exercise, I think. And that's, I think that was the exercise. I was, I was standing there at this bus stop, knee deep in water, trying to get back home. Something I've done all my life in Kolkata, like from July to September, we, I waded through water. It was like part of everyday life, but I never thought my city was a amphibious space. I thought I lived in a dry, I lived in a metropolis that didn't, I, like, we don't think that's not even flooding. This is not like there is floods that are different, but we had no language to talk about this, uh, this thing. I, I remember when I was growing up, my mom would say, oh, don't sleep on the floor. Uh, it's you, we, we, we are, our house is built on a swamp, you catch cold. And it's very interesting, you know, it's like ingrained and sedimented into language but it is not part of it. So I think like that is the first thing we need to pay attention to. It's very interesting. Once I started paying attention to, I would hear, so there was a legal case I was looking at and one of the fishermen came who is named as an unnamed Bengali fisherman in the um, uh, in this Privy Council, which is the, uh, the, the legal code that adjudicated cases outside um, uh, within London, but outside also in the empire. Uh, uh, this is 1776. And the fisherman says, you know, what is land today is headed for the bottom of the sea tomorrow. How do you adjudicate? So it was very interesting for, the, for me to then understand I had to do that kind of an unlearning process. So what it does is it unpacks this forest and field divide of environmental history. It unpacks the urban and the rural divide of environmental history. So what Amphibious does is asks us to pause and think of these spaces as also spaces with history, not in the same, spaces with temporality, spaces as seasonal, you know, spaces as something that can, that forms today and might be undone tomorrow and can come back next year with the annual monsoon. And then you have to begin to then write histories. I will say one thing that I found very, very useful as I was working through my book, uh, North American, you know, American urban historiography, especially, you know, like, Christopher Morris's Big Muddy, Ari Kelman's River and the City, which was trying to think about the Mississippi uh, or even uh, John McPhee's Achafalaya. You know, these are the aces that really helped me understand, okay, this is happening across the world at, the, at a very similar time, but we are not, uh, there are no scholarly debates that are putting these into conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, li literally you're creating sort of an increasingly fluid 
environmental history by by bridging those divides um, and thinking thinking with those different temporalities. Um, and I love to bring climate into the conversation as yeah. well. Um, can you talk a little bit about what role climatic shocks or disasters play in shaping these political ecologies that you study? And can this history tell us something about the relationships between climate change and urban space today and then what they might look like in the future? That's a very good question. Let me begin from the second question. See the places I like, you know, I work on Bay of Bengal cities. I like, I know, like, I, I will say I, I'm a student of the Bay of Bengal cities. I'm constantly reading and learning from them. And it's interesting when I go to the colonial archive, I realize that uh, the, the colonial engineers from the 18th century were also understood that these are spaces, uh, sites of learning, you know, these were laboratories for colonial experiments and colonial learning because they were encountering not just like these are these are engineers scientists or engineers uh, lawyers trained in a temperate weather having to come and adjudicate and build upon a very tropical tidal landscape that they were not necessarily aware of so two things like i will say first in within from the colonial context i see a lot of my uh, historical actors are being sent these british historical actors are being sent off to amsterdam to learn because they were saying, you know, these are tidal landscapes with turbulent climates. We cannot like, uh, England doesn't teach us anything. So there is this already an awareness that the geography and climate are kind of important to think with as we build. So that's already there. One, like, it's not that I see kind of a blinkered vision where people don't know. The second thing is that the climate drama that it, like, especially if you look at the IPCC climate report, uh, Calcutta, Bombay, Madras, these are some of the most threatened cities and the projection is by 2017. If we don't take the correct steps, these might be half flooded, half underground. There is already plans of managed retreat in the Bay of Bengal, uh, but there is also plans of building coal plants in those same areas where we are planning managed retreat. So it's, a, it's really kind of a complex, dense problem that we are confronting in these areas. To come to a second question of climate shocks and disasters, and I, you know, I've been reading a lot into disaster, disaster historiography or disaster studies. And as a person who's trained in colonial, colonial post-colonial historiography, it's, it's a literature that sounds very familiar because what is, you know, like, what, how do I talk? Like, you know, we have a rich literature on famines in colonial historiography, rich literature on uh, what thinking in terms of like a book that is really popular is Mike Davis's Victorian Holocaust. We have a rich literature on, you know, cyclones and how, how cyclones completely reshaped colonial policymaking. Rich literature on desiccation of forests, right? You know, I'm thinking of Richard Grove's work, right? But is that disaster? Is, is that a climate shock? How do we define? So I think what could be a very, very fruitful conversation at the moment is thinking in terms of, you know, disaster historians, which, you know, I feel like disaster history is a very important that began with, you know, 9-11, Katrina. It's very much inflected by that. That conversation has to happen also fruitfully with, you know, people who are looking at these things um, from the colonialism perspective, right? And then having that conversation, because I think the people who are working on colonial, post-colonial history are often not engaging with disaster historians, and disaster historians are also not going back and looking at this long 
longer kind of, uh, because uh, longer kind of historiography that exists so that we'll say, of course, these are policy driven, of course, these are man-made. Like colonialism completely, if you, if you decolonize disaster history, you completely come up to a very different space of thinking. So I think there is some very interesting conversation that can happen in that area. And I think that long view that you're saying that um, thinking with climate and urban infrastructure and how and why people live is, it's not new. It's not something that people started thinking about after 2005. And it has roots, as you're saying, in, in colonial and post-colonial studies, as well as um, the more environmental historiographies. No, and I think it's a very important point you're making, Emma. I think the question we need to ask is why was disaster not a disaster as a terminology and a concept not available to the earlier scholars and what it does, what it enables and what it obfuscates and is something as a conversation. I think I am also deeply thinking about because, you know, like we, we're talking about climate emergency in cities like Dhaka, cities like Kolkata, in, in like the Rohingya crisis is a climate crisis in some ways. It's happening in Bombay, it's happening in uh, Chennai. So it is a climate emergency moment in these cities. So Definitely, it's uh, what do you, how do you, how do you unpack? One thing I will say, and this is something I've learned from working with Meghna Mehta. She's an environmental anthropologist, and one thing she's uh, taught me is uh, very much, you know, she's saying she works in the Sundarbans with the uh, with the population that might be going through managed retreat, and some want managed retreat, some want to be moved away, and some don't. And she's saying what happens is when we go with a climate rubric, which World Bank, which IPCC, all of them would want to go with, we get all the other kinds of violence and precarity in their lives. Some find the electoral violence because, you know, elections are really problematic, like really deeply violent and structures life, structures aid, structures your access to everyday, um, your access to getting a, uh, getting a license to go into your forest work, structures everything, who you vote for, who you don't. So, like we, we have to take that, that's as, as important and as deeply entangled with climate. And so when the development brokers are in descend upon these areas, they have to take all of this into account. Of course, we as historians, social scientists, we take all of this into account, like how climate actually impacts electoral politics and violence in this area. And that's a very important, I think like the political violence that you see happening in Myanmar, in, in Bangladesh, in India is deeply like, it, it is a climate, it is deeply like kind of fueled by the kind of climate shocks, if we might call them. So this is, this is the story that I think like that is scary, but we have to continue to digging away at in some ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, because we're already doing it in the past, so we need to think with it now as well. Um, yeah, and and this gets into something that I wanted to talk about. Um, your first book talks about the quote unquote forgetting of the Bengal Delta, and it attempts to remedy that forgetting. Can you say more about the role of memory in helping to make sense of past and future environmental change? And how can climate historians best represent uh, these sort of forgotten past? That's a good question. Like how can climate historians uh, represent the forgotten past and what it does? So let me begin with the archival example and scale up. Uh, so when I began doing the work of, you know, like trying to pay attention to the watery spaces within the city, I discovered this really wonderful book written by a person from the fisherman caste. And this is the, you know, like India is a very caste uh, society uh, and the fisherman caste would be one of the lowest caste or the formerly untouchable castes uh, 
and he had written this book about his uh, history of Calcutta's oldest um, population and the autochthonous population, as he claimed it. It's a Bangla book uh, by Shankar Dere. And I began reading that book. And of course, like in India, one of, one of the things you have to understand, it's like history and memory is a very politicized subject because it is this, the Hindutva, Hindu right-wing regime wants to claim that they are the original inhabitants uh, and anybody who else is, is a conqueror. That is like, of course, the Muslim and the Mughal rule uh, is, is an outsider alien. So it's, it's within that contestation. We, of course, had in 1992, the demolition of the 15th century mosque by uh, the Hindu right wing. So it is within that, you know, there, there is, and this is a history memory debate is like a very febrile kind of a debate within South Asia. So what do you do with something like this? What do you do with his memories of the city? And I tried to write about it and I published a chapter called uh, Geography's Myth. And I tried to think through his memory. And so I wrote to him and I met him and he organizes this fisherman songs, which are folk songs that have been being performed since 15th century. And he takes out processions every year in Kolkata. So I went to his practice, they were preparing. I spoke to him and he said, let me give you a tour of the city. And he gave me a very different tour of the city. He saw steps leading to water on Built Road. He spoke, and of course, when you look at the Built Road, you see the road is called Creek Road. Um, or you go to a place and it's called the turned over, uh, turned over Land or Broken Boat. You know, you have all these names and he had a different way of remembering it. And I don't want to adjudicate on his memory and not, but what I realized is there was a form of, um, form of engagement with the landscape that has been erased out of our everyday bureaucratic languages and everyday administrative languages and it is there that you see the kind of unraveling of the property papers unravel because you know it's like this what do you do with this grain that runs through your house but you don't want to represent it once you start paying attention you see something very interesting happening so i realized as i started looking through the maps of calcutta and this is something similar happening also in chennai which bhavani raman is actually documenting you see that spaces you know when the government or the real estate developers want to take over land or these watery spaces they make it disappear so you suddenly see like from 1868 map where you see a little tank as they would be called you go to a 1890 map and the tank is gone but if you were to after walking all these tanks and i realize some of these tanks still exist although they are disappeared in the map and that's where the housing politics plays on. And there is a reason. And these are these tanks actually protect the city in some ways, because that's where the flood water go. That's where the backwaters, you know, it's a, like Calcutta is in a wetland, it's in a backwater. And once these start disappearing, the city will sink. So it's this, it's like this for, forgetting, I said, is a political agenda, we have to remember. There's a politics to this erasure, because the, it enables a certain kind of a movement of capital to take play once you can document you can erase it and forget that it is a water and i think it has played into in some ways about how we see the fact that we look at a half submerged landscape and still see land and not the water says something about as i called it a landed ontology and the fact that so many of the asian cities of the 20th century are cities built on reclamation is not just a, just a technological innovation. The fact that Bombay, Singapore, Jakarta, it, 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 is, it, it has a longer history of how we decided administratively to look at spaces, how we adjudicated legally, and what kind of technological projects that enabled in some ways. Yeah, yeah, and there are so many layers 
there with the the cartography and the bureaucracy and the collective memory and then individual memory. This is yeah, this is really interesting for me um, just to hear a little bit more about how to how to think about a watery space and why we don't think about it as a watery space. Um, so your next book, Climate, Futures, Past, Law and Weather Knowledge in the Indian Ocean World, explains the how the marine insurance markets risk apprehensions shaped weather knowledge, colonial oceanographic sciences, and a derivatives market in climate futures across the Indian Ocean region. Can you describe this ambitious project in greater detail and maybe tell us um, what led you to such a fascinating topic? Okay, there are two ways to uh, go about answering this. So one of the questions uh, that I feel dogged about a lot when I read, you know, like if you turn the pages of the Climate Column and Guardian or Washington Post or one of these major publications, which are fascinating is, you know, what we have turned to the market to solve our climate crisis. We're going to build carbon sink. We are going to do, you know, carbon taxes. We are going to like, it's like, it's a very numericized and monetized response. So I, I'm curious, why? Why is that, right? This is something that has been, something I've been curious about. Like in some ways I'm trying to understand. So there is, that is what made me turn, try, trying to really read, understand and look at who the actors are. And, uh, and of course, Lloyd's is a major actor. Assurance is a major actor. Munich Re, Swiss Re, these are major actors. And once you start looking at the work they are doing, you realize they are not doing climate denialism because one of the ways we've read the relationship between corporations and climate change is a story of climate denialism. So, and, and I was like, what is exactly going on? Why the insurance market is completely charting a different line. They are big capital, just like fossil fuel industry. But we've told the story of fossil fuel industry very, very carefully. You know, like Merchant Naomi or Eskis's Merchants of Doubt. It is really important. And fossil capitalism is a central book for my thinking in some ways. Uh, but is fossil capitalism the only story? Or is there another story that we need to tell? And this is a story that's operating. So if you look at the Lloyd's reports that they publish annually, they actually mark out risk geographies. And Bay of Bengal is a risk geography that emerged from the 2005 tsunami. Following the 2005 tsunami in the Indian Ocean, they said, this is a risk geography. So what happens when you mark out an area as a risk geographies? Capital flight, investment flight, production of refugees, movement of people, movement of goods. So there is this other kind of a churning that happens through these kind of delineation of spaces. It's not a story of climate denialism. So that's a story I began tracking. And then I realized like we have to tell this as a two pronged story, one of climate denialism and one of climate futures. And once you start digging in, you realize it's not a, it's a no brainer that we turn to the market to solve our climate crisis. So the way we, we're going to like rethink what's happening in Miami and places like that by Zillow is now churning new property valuation, right? That will take care of the problem. You know, we, I'm reading Rebecca Elliott's brilliant book on underwater uh, that just came out, which is basically telling us like, you know, what is, what kind of risk geographies are getting produced when the insurance markets kind of churns out new language. So that is one story that is deeply embedded in the fossil capital story. So that was kind of interesting. So I went back to the archive 
uh, and the Lloyd's archive just to look what's going on. And what I found completely boggled my mind. So Lloyd's would publish risk assurance, assurance profit book annually. And so you would order these boxes in Guildhall archives and they would come back to you for the annual. There would be anywhere between 12 to 20 books. And Lloyd's is heavily invested. This I'm talking about 1780, very early on. Lloyd's is heavily invested everywhere. But where is Lloyd's profits coming from? The Caribbean and the Indian Ocean. So one can say, okay, this is the place of, you know, Atlantic slave trade, British Empire, opium trade. Of course it is. But it is also the most turbulent space. Typhoons, hurricanes on one side, cyclones. It's the Baltics are calmer waters. The Mediterranean are calmer waters. Why is insurance so profitable in these waters? This is something, this is not a question. I have hunches. I am still working, trying to understand what, what, what made uh, insuring uh, risky trade profitable. Perhaps the answer is a kind of a futures market, like earlier versions of futures market we are seeing over there. Uh, but this is just a, still a hunch and I'm trying to still work through it. The other question came, like uh, the other reason why I got interested in the project is came through teaching. I have a really wonderful set of students. They come and they are, you know, like one of the major questions that we talk about when we talk about, you know, IPCC climate is India's refusal to decarbonize, right? We are a post-colonial nation and we have the right to a carbon economy, just like our Western counterparts. And I feel, and my students are very, they buy into it because they've been taught so much of post-colonial, decolonial thinking. And it's, and I'm not denying any of these things. It, yeah, it is true. There is vast swaths of India that doesn't have access to electricity, but it still leaves me uncomfortable because who are the carbon actors of India? The carbon actors are two or three people heavily invested in the right-wing, Hindu right-wing uh, fascist cover forms of governance dispossessing people. So then what are we exactly fighting for is kind of confused. So I think this is also the story I want to say. I want to understand the story of mobile capital that is not necessarily a geographically fixed, but a mobile capital that kind of fuels certain kinds of investments that could be fossil investment in a world where we are trying to decarbonize and global policy is moving towards that, but yet those kinds of monies are moving and what kind of political economy emerges out of it? What what is what does this new new what does this new fascist regime in India look like? It is a carbon regime. This, this is a story of Bolsonaro in Brazil. It is the story of, of what's happening in China. It is it is also a story of why we had someone like Trump. How do we tell these nested stories by only looking at fossil capital? And this is where I think the insurance market comes and plays this kind of a silent, very different role. And I'm kind of trying to track that story in some ways. Yeah, I really appreciate the way that you frame uh, your project's importance because yeah, the you know market-driven solutions are very much, you know, they're everywhere. And I think there are a lot of people who have various degrees of frustration with, you know, out like economizing ourselves out of the climate crisis. Um, but um, yeah, to hear the way the way that you put that was really helpful for me. And um, I would never, you know, I don't know anything about insurance. And so it's really helpful to say, oh, something about insurance. Um, and, you know, these, as you say, these nested stories can really help us to uncover human experiences and, and really, really urgent questions. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm so excited to read this book whenever it comes out. Um, 
And so to turn also to some other work that you do, you're part of two transdisciplinary initiatives, narrating science and ocean space. Can you also tell our listeners a little bit about these projects and what they aim to accomplish? Yeah, these are two, uh, thank you so much. And thank you for your kind words about my <laughs> book. Hopefully it'll be out soon, but we'll see. So these are two very different projects. So narrative science uh, is a project uh, that's headed by um, Mary Morgan. She's an economic historian at uh, London School of Economics. And you know, it's we are coming to an end with that project. It's funded by the uh, ERC grant. And the charge of the project has been to look at the role of narrativity in the making of you know, science, in the writing of science, in the dissemination of science, but also in the developing of the concepts of the science, uh, scientific concepts. So we have a whole range of like, a, uh, we have a book coming out, maybe hopefully end of this year with Cambridge University Press should be open access. We have a whole range of people trying to think through from, you know, like the kind of narrativity around aerial photography and how it influenced cartography to Dar Darwin's writing of plant narratives and how it actually influenced botany. So I, I have an essay there on, you know, how narrativity in some ways sealed the divide between prognostication of weather events and the development of, a, you know, cyclone science in some way, cyclonology as it's called, and what narrativity was doing and what forms of narrativity and what forms of diagramming and imaging. So I look at ship log books um, as kind of archive and the writing style and how that sort of defined in some ways, what is it like, you know, what is it we see when we see a cyclone? And I'm not talking about a period when there was no aerial viewing of cyclones. So today we have, you know, LSAT images and NASA images, which makes us see a cyclone as a cyclone. These are people who are looking at, uh, um, looking at winds, basically, winds flowing in every direction from the deck of a ship and actually seeing the circular movement. So I try to plot the kind of narrativity went from being able to see a wind that flows in, that is flowing in all direction, blowing in all direction to seeing it as a circular movement and then using it and, and, the, and you know, Henry Paddington who writes about it, he says, how do we profit from the storms? And when he says we profit from the storms only when we see it as cyclones, see it as this kind of circular wind. So I'm trying, that's the kind of project we are doing and trying to really think about the role in, in some ways it's bringing in literary theory to the history of science and working through it. The Ocean Archive is a very interesting experimental project um, where I am part of the Indian Ocean Gyre section. And what's been very interesting is how do we create small short modules that are widely available, not necessarily for specialists, I guess very similar to what you're doing. And one of the charge we do we have is to talk with uh, have conversations between artists who are thinking about climate change in the Himalayas, that's the third pole, um, uh, architects who are being brought in to adjudicate loss of land in Bangladesh, um, uh, historians who actually have to teach these things, um, filmmakers who've been documenting the Indian and Chinese borderland skirmish that's all about water and control of the headwaters, the biggest headwaters in Asia. All of us are basically coming together, trying to think together. So we call it messy studios. So we use the studio format where each of us engages not just with the content of the other, uh, um, other team members, but actually also through the modes of articulating this. 
So that's one of the things. So we are creating small nuggets. Of course, with the uh, uh, the plan was also to have a exhibition in the Venice Biennale, but of course, with uh, the pandemic, things have been all over. Yeah, all kind of interrupted. Right. Yeah. Well, hopefully, hopefully, something like that can happen in you know the the pending after times. Let's hope. Um, so. <laughs> yeah. Or we'll come up with new methods of dissemination. That's what the pandemic has asked us to sort of confront and think through in some ways and as climate as scholars who study climate like you me dagomar we have to have to be attuned to uh the attuned to listening to what we have to listen about this moment right mm, yeah yeah that's really well put um yeah totally i think there's really interesting potential and now i mean we were talking um before we started recording about the you know, getting to connect with people over Zoom for our podcast. Um, so I think, yeah, there are, you know, definitely exciting potentials um, that have come to light. But I love what you're what you're talking about with these two projects. Uh, we talk a lot on this podcast about collaboration, but we talk about collaboration a lot with the natural sciences and I think less with um, other kinds of work and, you know, talking about narrativity and literary studies and art. And um, I think that's so important for communication to a wider audience, especially, which, and that's something we also talk about a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, it's really, it's like, it's how do we, I think going forward, we know in some ways, you know, like when I looked at my gentleman scientists, uh, they, they are talking to many fields. It's like at some point, you know, in the 1850s, you see the siloing of knowledge. And we, our universities are products of that siloing of knowledge. And suddenly, for the last 10 years, we are being forced to think outside our disciplines. We used to be able to, right? We didn't discipline us into this manner of thinking. So hopefully, like, one of the things I feel like, especially I think the younger generation scholars who are now beginning, early career scholars, people like you, you guys are agile thinkers. You guys, uh, you guys can think across borders, across methods, across disciplines. And that's going to be really, really important for the next generation of scholarship that we are going to read and confront in some ways. Yeah, 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 I think so too, for sure. Um, so I wanna wrap up by asking a question that we ask variations of a lot. Um, do you see your work as providing new perspectives, not just on the past, but on the challenges of the present and the future? And if so, what are those perspectives and what can we take, take with us as we move forward? That's a, yeah, I'm a, like, this is a question I think I, I get asked a lot and I always wonder what is an answer to this question in some ways. You know, as I say, I'm a student of history. And one of the things that archive has taught me is to become like a close reading of the archive has taught me is to become aware of other forms of reading. So like, I, what have I learned in some ways, you know, like I've learned and what do we, what can we learn from this? Do I have answers to how to solve the climate crisis problem in Calcutta? Yeah, I mean, I have some policy recommendation. I would dare not speak it out because I'm, I feel, I don't know if they are the answers, but a couple of things I will tell you. Uh, one of the things I've learned is, um, you know, whenever people had more autonomy, you know, there are moments when, you know, if you look at how the Indian state function, sometimes the state is heavily present, sometimes it's not present. 
whenever you, wherever you see state, people had more autonomy, somehow they have been able to thwart off uh, smaller forms of climate crisis. Uh, but then, then there is the challenge, like are we then asking the states not to be responsible? So there is that thing. But the other thing is like, I'm, I'm realizing for instance, like there's a range of work people are doing. So for instance, the one group I want to flag is, um, it's called the Coastal Research Institute. Uh, these are former fishermen who've learned how to use GIS. They call themselves mapivists, and they are actually doing they are doing remapping and taking the tour of the map and taking. Uh, these are fishermen who live and making a claims of their livelihood because the fisher rights, which is called Jhalkar rights, they're making fisher rights claims all along, you know, Bay of Bengal coast and the Arabian Sea coast in India. So there are all these kinds of things happening. So what do I say? is like we have to read this openly our state might read this as illegality because they are redrawing maps how do we as historian scholars read this as open with an openness how do we learn or what you know Gayatri Sivak always calls it like upstream learning how do we do that kind of learning so you know for me so much of my work was sitting in that archive and unlearning my way of looking at my city a city I grew up in and I think that's very important. How do we remain aware and let, and we'll see solutions emerge in some way. So for instance, a colleague of mine who's at LSE, Kasha Poproki, she's a geographer. You know, she's been working for a long time with this small community in Bangladesh who've actually did not go the World Bank polder way or the, whenever there is a salination of the agrarian fields, fisheries come in in, in these, uh, in the mangrove forests of the Sundarbans. And that becomes a new life view. They've pushed back and they are, they are actually, they've taken control. And what we see is once they have control, uh, it's, it's actually sometimes better solution than the giant state-of-the-art holders that the World Bank is building. So they, this kind of learning on the cracks of where, of government failures, state failure, development failure, we might, there are lessons to be learned there. So in some ways, the one lesson that I take that has any balance beyond my beyond the history books we write and three people read is this kind of paying attention to these fissures, paying attention to the spaces where the logic breaks, be it the bureaucratic logic or the development logic or the state logic and doing a kind of upstream learning in that area in some ways, I think. Yeah, definitely. I think that's something so important for climate historians to continue to practice. Um, yeah, this has been such an exciting conversation. Uh, it's been so great to learn about your work and to hear what you have to say about uh, climate history in general and, and where things might be going, where we might be headed. Professor Bhattacharya, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Thank you so much, Emma, and I look forward to your work also. <laughs> thank you. To learn more about climate change in the past, present, and future, visit historicalclimatology.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at ClimateHist. Thanks for listening to the Climate History Podcast. <laughs>